Welcome to the Work and Wonder podcast. In this podcast, I share spiritual insights gained from my studies. I'm a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I use the Book of Mormon as my primary study material. I'll also reference the Bible and other scriptures, talks, or resources that I find helpful. My goal is to share simple, short and sweet messages that build faith and inspire changes in our lives that bring us closer to Jesus Christ. Here we are, week four of the Work and Wonder podcast. I'm just going to jump right in, guys. This week we are trying to get a topic that's more spiritually based uh, than last week. Last week was more of the academic scholarly side, and I think that's very interesting stuff, but I want to make sure that we don't lose our center of the spiritual side of the scriptures and the meat and nutrients they can offer to us and our souls, and that's really important. So <laughs> I surely don't want to get caught up so hard on the academics and, you know, interesting stuff on that side that it kind of loses its uh, say its spirit, which I think is uh, the, the really the most important part of the scriptures. If we're not taking it from that angle, we're not getting the full use that God intended out of, uh, out of them for us. Okay, so I'm going to start off with scripture. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, he, referring to God, maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, so what does that mean? I, one interpretation is that good and bad things happen to good and bad people. And it's not necessarily that, you know, just because you're righteous that nothing bad ever, is ever going to happen to you. And I think that's an important distinction. So here's some statistics. Uh, so each day, almost 3,700 people are killed in vehicle crashes. 1,600 people die from cancer each day in the U.S. alone. 60,000 people die from natural disasters each year. I just pulled these uh, statistics up off uh, Google, so you can, you can search them and see where they're backed up. I'm not going to bother putting the references. But, you know, these bad things happen every day in the world, and, you know, we surely cannot assume that bad things only happen to bad people. Each of you in your life has probably experienced things that seem bad and you've suffered and had hardship. And even a lot of the saints and prophets in old times who were persecuted and martyred and suffered a lot of things. And so surely, you know, it's not the case that uh, just because something bad is happening to you, that you're wicked. And where does this come from, this way of thinking that, you know, if things are good, you must be righteous. And if things are bad, you must be wicked. Well, I think there are lots of examples in the scriptures that support a way of thinking that um, righteousness leads to blessings and wickedness leads, leads to being smitten of God. Because in the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon, you know, we have lots of examples where that is the case, definitely. And it's very straightforward in those cases, especially the Old Testament. Um, but just because righteousness leads to blessings and wickedness leads to being smitten of God in all those, a lot of those cases, does it mean the reverse is true? And what I mean by that is, if someone seems to be blessed, does that mean that they're righteous? Or if someone seems to be punished, does that mean that they're wicked? And I think this is where the fallacy creeps in, and we're not thinking straight. Uh, consider if someone said this statement. Uh, if it rains outside, the sidewalk's going to be wet. You could say, okay, yeah, that's true. Uh, what can we derive from that statement? Could someone logically infer that then if the sidewalk is wet, it must be raining? No, no, you know, you can't switch it like that. It's not, that's a logical fallacy. Uh, some people call it modus bogus, and it's not really important to know. It's just a fancy name they attribute to that fallacy. But yeah, that's, a, that's bad reasoning. 
because the sprinklers could have made the sidewalk wet or someone could have poured a cup of water on the sidewalk and it could have been wet. And it, you know, all those things could have caused it other than rain. And so, you know, when we use that kind of logic on just because God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked, doesn't mean that anyone who seems to be blessed or seems to be punished is righteous or wicked. That's kind of reversing the reasoning. So anyway, um, moving on, this, this introduces uh, a lot of things. I know we could go in a lot of directions here, and I want to hit a lot of these uh, tangents. But um, before I do, I, I think one relevant story is the story of Job. And I'll be touching on this story later, I think, a little bit. But in the story of Job, a lot of bad things happen to him. If you guys don't know, it's a, like his family members die or leave him in his house and all the servants and stuff, everything uh, just gets taken from him. And then on top of that, he gets all these diseases and boils. And um, by the end, even his friends who had remained with him and tried to stay true to him eventually just say, hey, you sure you didn't sin here because things are going really bad here and it looks like you probably did mess up. And, you know, even when his wife... Uh, all these things are happening. She says, curse God and die. And so it's really drastic. Just the extreme case uh, of all the bad things you could think of happening to one person. And so it's a very interesting story or anecdote that's shared in the Bible. And the question is, why did these happen? Job clearly, it states, didn't sin. He wasn't sinning, or at least, you know, that's not why all those things happened. And so the question becomes, why does evil happen? Why, why is there evil in the world? And this is such a popular problem that philosophers and scholars and all these people have tried to really uh, articulate this and really find the solution to it. And it's a very uh, long-lasting problem. It's probably been around since the beginning that people have wondered why this is the case. Um, there's a, even on Wikipedia, if you look up the problem of evil, you'll find it. Uh, it's addressed in most beginning philosophy courses in uh, colleges or universities. So on Wikipedia, it says the problem of evil is the question of how to reconcile the existence of evil and suffering with an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God and omniscient God. Um, so it's just addressing this problem. How can, you know, God exist being all powerful and good and uh, knowing everything, surely he knows all of this evil's going on and he has power to change it, right? Yet it still exists. And so some people use this to try to refute God's existence. They say, if God exists, then he is omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect and good. And if he's all those things, then he has power to eliminate evil. And he also knows that it exists. And since he's morally perfect, he has the desire to eliminate all evil, and so because evil exists, must mean that he doesn't exist. You know, so that's one line of reasoning that people will use, and obviously that becomes a challenge for those of us who do believe in God. You know, we've got experiences and things from the scriptures that tell us, you know, no, we know there is a God. We really believe that. Um, so how do we how do we work out this problem? There's got to be a solution here. Well, a lot of people have tried coming up with good arguments to defend God in this case and defend their belief in him. And it's actually such a popular topic that any argument that is trying to defend God in this case is called a theodicy. And I'm throwing out some fancy terms here. I said it would be more spiritual, not so academic, but just trying to give us a well-rounded picture here. And so a theodicy is means vindication of God. It's an answer to the question of why a good God permits the manifestation of evil 
and resolves the issue of the problem of evil. That's what theodicy is. So some of the most popular theodicies or arguments to defend God in this case, uh, one of them is called the soul-making theodicy. And this is where you, you say, well, all evils in the world are justified if one views the world as designed by God to be an environment in which people, through their free choices, can undergo spiritual growth that will ultimately fit them for communion with God. And um, I'm reading some quotes here to define these theodicies, and they're from Stanford University's website. They have an article on the problem of evil. Maybe I'll throw that in the show notes. Kind of interesting read. So that's the soul-making theodicy. You're trying to explain evil by saying, well, it, it all contributes to our growth and makes us qualified to live with God. So it's worth it. It justifies it. Um, another one is called the free will theodicy. And it just says that, well, evil must exist because there's free will. And, you know, if you force people to not do evil, then you take away their free will. And that's worse than all the evil existing that now currently exists. Uh, so that's another one. Then a third one I'll mention is the need for natural law. So this one just says evil exists because pretty much it must, because there are natural laws that lead, you know, govern the patterns and things in the universe. And um, the only way you could get rid of evil is by changing or removing these natural laws, but they must be in place. So you can't remove them. So evil just must exist. And some of these theodicies are weaker than others. And I, I don't think any of them adequately solve the dilemma as it has been posed uh, thus far. And I think because the question kind of makes some assumptions about God that are false, actually. It assumes that God can and could just remove evil, you know, just with a snap of his fingers because he has all power. He could do that. And also it assumes that, um, you know, I know this is going off on a tangent, but that God created the whole universe from nothing. Even the laws, everything, he created the whole universe, all of the um, things that exist in it, and all the way that it works and everything. And this is opposed to an idea that God did not create everything from nothing. Rather, he, this universe has always existed, or at least, you know, matter and stuff has always existed. And God, you know, didn't create the laws. He just abides by them and uses them. And so anyway, uh, kind of interesting thoughts, but that is the problem of evil. And an argument against it, or to defend God, is called a theodicy. So some other thoughts about why bad things happen in the world. I saw in the New Era from July of 2003, there was a questions and, or questions and answers article that addressed this topic. Why do bad things happen? This is what it said. Bad things often occur when people make bad, bad decisions. Those decisions can affect others. Bad things can be turned to our good if we seek God's will. By enduring our trials, we become stronger and more understanding. Rather than ask, why me? Ask, what can I learn from this? We can turn to the Savior in any trial because he knows exactly how we feel and can help us. So, I think these are good points, and some of them are similar to some of those theodicies mentioned above. You know, it grows our soul so we can uh, grow and become stronger and understand more things. So that's good. You know, trials can help us. And uh, what can I learn from this? You know, shifting our perspective. And maybe God's giving the, this us to us to learn something. And, you know, you can go along these lines of reasoning, and it works with certain trials, like, you know, you have a broken arm, or maybe your grandma died or something, and they're, they're tough things. 
But what about those evils in the world where like, uh, it just seems like pointless suffering, you know, like a tree falls on a deer out in the middle of the forest and no one's there, no one sees it, but it crushes its leg and the deer just has to starve to death there and no one can even eat it. Uh, you know, so that kind of evil seems to have absolutely no benefit. And so you, you wonder, well, what about those unnecessary evils, you know, as they may seem? And so this question really is a tough one um, because not all of these answers of why evil would be necessary explain all of these weird cases or the really, really drastic ones where children are abused or something or, you know, the Holocaust or the, the Black Plague or, you know, natural disasters that killed millions of people. And you're wondering, you know, why did those have to happen? Couldn't God have just, you know, changed it a little so not as many people suffered or... You know, and you can go on and think about this. Whoa. If he has all power, why couldn't he have made it better? And so this is really digging into the question. Uh, why does this kind of evil exist, especially the seemingly unnecessary evils that seem to derive no good? Um, so there's a book out there called The God Who Weeps, and that's written by a member of the church who's named Terrell Givens. And it's a great book. He also wrote The Crucible of Doubt, The Crucible of Faith. I can't remember what it's called, but great author. He's got some really good insight. Uh, but one topic he addressed in there is, as the title suggests, God weeping. And this is an interesting story we get in the scriptures from the Pearl of Great Price. I'm going to read that section of scripture, and it's Moses 7, verses 28 through 31. So Enoch is talking with God face to face, and they're, you know, he's getting to ask him questions. He's learning about the nature of God and so forth. And at one point, uh, this is what it says. And it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people and he wept. This is the residue of people that are going to be uh, killed in the flood of Noah's time. And Enoch bore record of it saying, how is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains? And Enoch, Enoch said to the Lord, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing that thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? And were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, and thy curtains are stretched out still, and yet thou art there, and thy bosom is there, and also thou art just, thou art merciful and kind forever, and thou hast taken Zion into thy, or to thine own bosom, from all thy creations, from all eternity to all eternity. And not but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne. And mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. How is it thou canst weep? So this question is interesting because Enoch has beheld the glory of God and seeing his inhabitation, you know, his, his nature and kind of his lifestyle and how much peace and knowledge and the expanse of his understanding and uh, perspective is. And then he's like, how in the heck are you weeping at this? Uh, you know, he's just really baffled by it. And God goes on to talk about how the people were so wicked and he created them. And he said, none of them had been this wicked before. And I, you know, I have to cease this violence and wickedness from before my face. And they're going to be shut up in spirit prison or a prison have I prepared for them, he says, um, when the flood comes. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a really sad thing. And so you can understand why he weeps. But I may, I think the question is, why would an omniscient and omnipotent God, 
weep at this. Because, think about this. Isn't sadness a result of something happening that you don't want to happen or you wish didn't happen? Uh, you know, is there anything that makes you sad that you, you know, you really are glad that it happened and wish it and you, you even wanted it to happen? You know, I don't think so. I think it's contrary to our desires and that's what makes it sad. We wish it didn't have to be so. And so this is, <laughs> why would why would God feel sadness? Because that implies why would there be something that has to happen that God can't just change? You know, if he's sad about it, why doesn't he just change it? Um, you know, if he has all power, all knowledge, couldn't he have the foresight to just say, oh, this is going to, this tree is going to fall down on that person. I'm just going to snap my fingers and make them walk another way so it doesn't happen. And then I'm not going to be sad. Nothing has to go contrary to my desire. And that's the question we could ask. Why doesn't God do that? So there's another book I read called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And this book is by a Jewish rabbi, I believe. His name's Harold Kushner. And one point he makes in that book, it's kind of implied throughout the book, and it's a pretty short read if you guys want to check it out. But the point is that God is not necessarily the instigator or the creator of the bad things which is kind of what people imply a lot of times. You know, when you get cancer or something, I know that's not a normal thing to happen to everyone, but when someone gets cancer, they might have advice from a friend, unsolicited advice that's like, I wonder why God gave this to you. And that could be a very big misunderstanding when someone says that, because does God really give you those bad things? You know, when some horrific thing happens to a child and they're born with some rare illness that uh, makes them so they're deformed and going to be in pain their whole life, but they're not going to die, you know, how, how could we go to that parent and say, hmm, what is God trying to teach you here? And I know I have to be careful when I'm saying this, because it is not to say that God cannot teach you something, but it is to say that, you know, God did not create that thing necessarily. God is not the creator of evil, is my point. And so I, I think we have to be careful in our language there. So I'm going to move on here. This is, this is going along uh, the nature of God and what he can and cannot do. And um, if you guys have ever been in an area where there are a lot of mainstream Christians, I served my mission in Houston, Texas, and you'd get a lot of those people. And there are kind of slogans or sayings about God that I think are generally accepted, uh, at least at least like casually. And one of those is that God can do anything. You know, there's nothing my God can't do. There's even Christian rock songs called that, I think. <laughs> nothing my God can't do. And I think that's a great idea. You know, it, it sounds good and God is all powerful. So that's great. And we, we want to recognize his sovereignty. But at the same time, we got to be careful here because we're kind of making a mistake because there are things God cannot do. And uh, I remember one guy on my mission, we were driving our car in a parking lot in a apartment complex. And this, this older guy that, you know, is kind of uh, skeptical and pessimistic, he stopped us and we rolled down the window and he's like, let me prove to you guys that God doesn't exist. God can do anything right. And I guess here's the mistake, but I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. And he's like, okay, then can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? 
and this is kind of just a word trap right it's like okay you know that's not really a valid argument it's just kind of a silly word play on words but anyway um let's let's talk about these things what can god not do well god cannot lie he cannot change which kind of goes along with lying and being consistent um god cannot justify sin in the least degree he cannot deny justice and he cannot sin so maybe if we want to articulate these a little better, we could even say that I guess God technically could do these things, but if he did, he would cease to be God. Um, there's a scripture where Alma or Amulek, forgot which one it is, but in Alma 11:37, he says, and I say unto you again, oh yeah, this is Amulek, that he, God, cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word and he hath said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can he be saved except he inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, you cannot be saved in your sins. So Amulek's making this point because the one of the sneaky lawyers, the Ezra, was trying to trick him. And he's like, "Can will God save his people in their sins? And Amulek's like, no. And he's like, oh, look what he just said. And, you know, he's, he's being really sneaky and dishonest there, kind of like uh, the media to in politics and stuff trying to misrepresent people and misconstrue their words. So God cannot save people in their sins. He must save them from their sins and of their sins. So um, Hebrews 6.18 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So he says it's impossible for God to lie there. Sorry, I just bumped the microphone if you heard that. Um, another scripture here, Alma 42, 13, it says, According to justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state. Yea, this preparatory state, for except it were for these conditions, mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now, the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. And I don't know exactly what that means if God just poofs away because he just contradicted himself or something like that. Um, but yeah, he cannot uh, cease to be God. He cannot violate the laws of Godhood or, you know, and, and some people kind of get caught up on this and they're like, are you saying that there are things above God and that he just has to be a slave to these laws? And it's like, that's it. I wouldn't use that wordage, but I would say, yes, God has to be consistent to certain laws. Uh, you know, these are defined laws of honesty and morality and consistency that he has to live by in order to be God. This is not so much a limitation on God rather than a definition of who he is, who he has chosen to be and desires to be. Uh, that is who God is. He's consistent. He is honest. And uh, that definition exists and he exists. So it's not so much a limitation as a definition of who he really is. So we've talked about what God can't do. Now let's talk about what God can do. And before describing the things that God can do, I, I do want to clarify here because um, we addressed the problem of evil and we talked about different theodicies or arguments of how to defend it. Um, and I didn't really articulate the perspective shift or paradigm shift of um, an understanding of God and clarify what think inaccuracies were made in the argument about the problem of evil because it supposes that God has power to 
eradicate evil, yet he chooses not to. And I'm going to suggest that God cannot do this. And and it's kind of implied because of that story in Moses where he's weeping. You see that God weeps, therefore he is sad. Why is God sad? Because something is happening that he cannot stop. He cannot stop the wickedness of the people except, you know, to flood the earth and remove them and start again. But the fact that, you know, God is weeping about this and sad at it, just like, you know, we're sad at these things, uh, shows an interesting shift, I think, where it's that, you know, God cannot stop these things from happening. I think there are laws of justice and there are, you know, these, yeah, I guess principles and laws already in motion, already established that prevent him from intervening and, you know, infringing upon people's rights and free will. And also the fact that this is a fallen world that we chose to come to in the pre-existence and, you know, the fall was declared. Uh, Adam and Eve became cursed and fallen man. And to intervene and interrupt that plan, God would be, I think, contradicting his own laws and decrees. And so this is an important and necessary evil. And it does not mean that, you know, God is the one who is causing, you know, the every single disease and every single natural disaster. Surely, you know, in the Bible, there are instances where natural disasters or disease were used as punishment, but that does not mean that God is really the one who is causing these bad things uh, all the time, at least. And I think that's important to make that distinction. So, okay, what can God do? That's what we want to address now. So I think one of the most amazing things that God does is he takes the the trials and the travesties and somehow uses them for his gain. And I think people get confused here thinking that, you know, this, this is going back to that idea of why did God give me cancer? And I think that's a mistake to assume that God gave you the cancer. But I think what's right is that he can use the cancer to bless you. It doesn't mean that he gave it to you. But I, I think that's really the amazing thing that God can take the horrible circumstances and use them to accomplish his works. That's really the brilliance of God. So for instance, I'll, I'll give some examples here and I think that I'll get my point across. So the fact that evil exists is actually necessary to God accomplishing his greatest work, or at least the greatest work we know, which is the plan of salvation. And it says in 2 Nephi 2, I think these are the teachings of Lehi, where he says, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead. And I'll skip ahead. He says, wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and the mercy and justice of God. So it is necessary that there is opposition. So God uses this fact that evil and opposition exist to his advantage to create this environment, a fallen world, where mankind can grow and develop and become like him. So it's him using, I know it's a cliche saying, but using the lemons to make lemonade. So I'm going to show you a few more examples here. One is Genesis 3.15. So you remember after the fall, uh, God's like, 
uh, Adam, why'd you partake of the tree? And he's like, well, the woman you gave me told me to partake, and I did. And he's like, Eve, why did you do it? And she's like, well, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And he's like, serpent, why did you do it? And, you know, <laughs> going down the chain. But uh, when he gets to the serpent, he says, all right, I'll put enmity, or sorry, <laughs> pronounce that really weird. <laughs> I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. One cool interpretation I like of this is, is as follows. So who is the seed of the woman? Well, I guess it's all of mankind, right? We all came from Eve. Um, but one person who is the seed exclusively of the woman, or at least not from Adam, but he is from Eve, is uh, Jesus Christ. He was born of woman, but he was not born of mortal man. He was from Heavenly Father, was his uh, father. So Jesus is the seed of the woman, and it says that Jesus, if we interpret it that way, will bruise uh, the serpent's head, even though the serpent will bruise his heel. And I like the temple's uh, way of putting that scripture where he says, crush the serpent's head. So the serpent may bruise his heel, but he'll crush his head. So what is that moment? Or what are those things? When does the serpent bruise his heel? Well, I guess, you know, the serpent tempts us and leads us astray. So that could be interpreted as a bruise. And how do we bruise the serpent's head? I don't know, righteousness? That's kind of what I thought before. But then I heard this cool interpretation that says, well, they are one in the same act. The bruising of the serpent's head, or crushing of its head, and the bruising of the seed of the woman's heel is the same thing. It is the crucifixion and atonement of Jesus Christ. So, because the serpent, Satan, he you know, probably thought he was having the most victorious day of his life when he crucified Jesus Christ. He said, I am killing the Son of God. And surely he thought that was a great victory for himself. He was bruising the hill of the seed of the woman. Yet, what he didn't know, that while his, he was bruising the hill, his head was being crushed because the atonement was actually leading to the greatest victory of Christ, the atonement and resurrection uh, for all mankind. And so it's kind of like the act of the serpent biting the hill it happens at the same time that the hill is crushing the head. So I know I'm probably rambled too much about that story, but I really like that interpretation. And that's another instance where God is using something that seems to be horrific and seems to be an utter failure, but it actually turns it around, flops it on its head, and makes it one of the greatest moments in history, maybe the greatest. Uh, so here's another story. This one's, uh, <laughs> this is kind of one of those Chinese Zen stories. And it's not really an instance where God turns it around. It's, I don't know how you interpret it, but I think it's a relevant story where something that seems to be bad can be turned around and become something good. So this is called the farmer and his horse, or actually, I don't know what it, if it has a real name, but this is how it goes. A farmer had a horse for work and transportation and the horse ran away one day. His neighbors told him, ah, that's such bad luck. The farmer replied, maybe. A few days later, the horse came back and brought three wild horses back with it. All the farmer's neighbors congratulated him, saying, Wow, how fortunate. The farmer said, Maybe. A few days later, the farmer's son was riding one of the wild horses, and he was thrown off and broke his leg. The farmer's neighbors offered, offered him uh, their sympathy, saying, Oh, that's horrible luck. The farmer said, Maybe. 
The next day, the military officials came through the village to draft young men into the army. Because the farmer's son had a broken leg, they passed him by. The neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out and told him it was such a good thing. He said, maybe. And in the Wu Wei, Taoism, Chinese, you know, stuff, they, they're really into that idea of there is good and there is bad. And, you know, we shouldn't, I think, label them as such. And that something that seems to be bad can actually be something very fortunate. So they just kind of go with the flow and, uh, you know, you can see it that way, but I think also God works in a similar way where something that it seems to be so bad can become actually a wonderful blessing, better than it could have been before. So here is another example. One of the things that people consider to be a horrible thing that happened in the world was the Holocaust in World War II. And that involved, obviously, Germany and Japan and there were a lot of terrible things that happened, a lot of people that died, a lot of suffering. And it just, it does seem horrible. It was a horrible thing. Yet, how interesting that uh, so many good things came from that. Uh, first off, somehow G Germany and Japan rebounded from that and became some of the most uh, stable and strong economical forces and countries in the world, uh, which I think is really impressive. And not to mention that there are many innovations and inventions that came because of the inspiration or coming from World War II. Some of those, to name a few, this is from History.com. They have an article called uh, World War II Innovations. Flu vaccines were invented as a byproduct. Penicillin, uh, jet engines, the atomic bomb, blood plasma transfusion, electronic computers, and radar you know these are just a few of them but wow those are huge inventions that have totally shaped the way the world is today and given us a lot of benefit and so that that came largely as a part of the necessities of reactions to world war ii so it's amazing how something that's so horrific can be actually a great blessing in some ways to us you know not to say that the suffering was good it certainly wasn't but there are great things that have come as a result of world war ii Another one is the Black Plague. Um, I mentioned this one before. People name this as one of the worst things that have happened in history. I think between like 70 and 200 million people died uh, between that, 75 and 200 million. So seems pretty bad. But I think I was reading somewhere in this article, this one's from lumenlearning.com. They talk about uh, some economic benefits that came from it. And some things that uh, really started reshaping philosophy and laws and um, even some of Shakespeare's dramas can be attributed to some of the Reformation that happened as a consequence of the Black Death. At least some historians assert that. So I think, you know, even the worst things can become beneficial to us. And again, I have to reiterate here, I'm not saying those things are good you know, the Black Plague or World War II. I'm not saying those are good, but I'm saying good things have come because of that. And scriptural example is Joseph of Egypt. If you guys remember that, he was the loved son of his father, and his older brothers hated him and were jealous, so much so that they threw him into a pit and were going to kill him. One of them decides not to kill him, but to, um, to sell him as a slave. And so he becomes a slave, works his way up, and, you know, the, then he gets accused by Potiphar's wife of adultery and 
gets fired from that job, goes into prison again, and a lot of things that are just horrible happen to him. And, you know, any other person might be like, this is just horrible luck. God must hate me, you know, or this is, why is everything against me? Yet Joseph was faithful, and it says that he was blessed of God in so much that everything he touched, everything he was involved with, prospered. And something that seemed horrible, especially to uh, Jacob, his father, because he loved Joseph so much, it seemed like a horrible thing that, you know, he thought he was dead. Yet when the famine came, the years of uh, famine in Egypt, Joseph was second in command with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh even put him in charge of all of all of his stuff, pretty much. And Joseph was able to redeem his family. And there's a lot of symbolism there of uh, messianic origins or sim symbolism of Joseph of Egypt. And I really love that. Maybe we'll do another episode about that. But something that seemed so bad at first, Joseph's supposed death and him being cast into prison and all those horrible things, ended up saving and redeeming his family. So it was a great blessing. And Joseph even said that at the end. He said, no, God designed it this way. He used it to our benefit. Another one I was thinking is the Lamanites um, in the Book of Mormon. They're the, you know, they split off from the Nephites and they become sworn enemies. Yet God even uses them as a scourge to re remind the Nephites and to stir them up to righteousness. So he used it for their benefit. Um the anti-Nephi-Lehites, if you guys remember that, some of the Lamanites converted to uh, the church at the time, Christianity, and they were so converted that they wouldn't even pick up their swords to kill the people who were attacking them. So some other Lamanites that hated them fought them and started killing them, and the anti-Nephi-Lehites just kneeled down and prayed, and they were just slaughtered, which was a horrible thing. But on the flip side... Um, they were all redeemed because they were righteous. And on top of that, more people uh, joined them and were converted to the church than those who were slain, the scriptures say. So it's amazing. So uh, I've given a few examples here. And I think the point that is made is that trials and hardship are actually necessary to life, even though they are sad. God does not create all of them. He is not the author of, all, of evil but he can use evil and hardship in our lives to benefit us. In 1 Peter 1.7, it says, The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, he says it's worth more than gold, your trial. So, when your car breaks down or you're, you know, you got a diagnosis of some, well, or did I say that right? Diagnosis? <laughs> For some reason, I'm second-guessing myself, wondering if I pronounced that right. If you get <laughs> diagnosed with some disease or something seems horrible and your life's falling apart, it seems, know that God can take any of that and turn it over on its head and use it for a, a stepping stone to get to the next point in your life, even higher than you were before. And what may seem horrible at the time will become a blessing if you trust in God. Um, just a couple more things to really put the cherry on top on this episode in Romans 8.28, and also DNC 98.3, they kind of say the same thing. It says that we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. In DNC it says, All things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good, and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. And I love this. Um, I'm a big chess fan. I think I mentioned that in my intro once. But in chess... 
the most amazing moves come from noticing someone's mistake. You notice your opponent's mistake and you use it to your advantage to create a beautiful move that you couldn't have created if they hadn't made that mistake. So mistakes in our life, bad things happen. God can have a brilliant chess move, so to say, and flip it over on its head and turn it into something beautiful. So the last quote I want to end with is from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's talk called Waiting on the Lord from two conferences ago. I think it was a, what would that be, October or the fall conference of 2020. And he's uh, amending a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And he says this, It is not, or it simply will not work to glide naively through life, saying, as we sip another glass of lemonade, Lord, give me all thy choicest virtues, but be certain not to give me grief, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor opposition. Please do not let anyone dislike me or betray me, and above all, do not ever let me feel forsaken by thee or those I love. In fact, Lord, be careful to keep me from all the experiences that made thee divine. And then, when the rough sledding by everyone else is over, please let me come and dwell with thee, where I can boast about how similar our strengths are and our characters as I float along on my cloud of comfortable Christianity. Wow, that hit me hard the first time I heard it. I was like, wow, how many times have I thought these same things and not know, not realizing the mistake in it, you know, thinking that God should just remove hardship from me because I don't like the thing. God ought to remove it. What a mistake, you know, and who am I to think that I should have it easier than Abinadi or Isaiah or Joseph of Egypt or Jesus Christ, who was the perfect, you know, example. He did nothing wrong, yet his life was full of hardship. So, let us see hardship with a new perspective and accept it willingly as our path to growth. Not saying that, you know, God wants us to, you know, have those horrible things happen to us. But I think he knows that suffering and hardship are necessary. And he also knows he's got things under control and he can use them to our advantage. But don't take it so personal and think that God is trying to hurt you. He's, God does not want you to, to be hurt and to suffer, to be tortured. He wants you to grow. And I think just as a loving parent would want to, you know, help their child as much as they can, he wants to help us even more. So that's for this week. I hope it is relevant to you guys and that you got something useful out of it. It was a kind of long one again. Maybe this is just my sweet spot, about 40 minutes. So um, one other thing, I'm going to put in the show notes a website that I have for the podcast now. So if you guys would like, you can now send me comments that you have on the show. Um, there's a contact form at the bottom of it. At least I think I just threw it together. I, I wasn't too concerned about the aesthetics of the website. I just wanted it to be functional. It does look pretty good though. It's made by WordPress. So, um, yeah, so check it out. I'll put the link in the description and also share this with your friends, guys. I don't have very many listeners right now. In fact, I could <laughs> probably count them on two hands. Um, but I do want this to be heard and I want it to grow. So I share it with other people and I hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, give me feedback though. Please contact me and tell me what you think um, because there are very few right now who listen and I, I want to hear what you guys think. So anyway, I'll talk to you next week.